Chapters thirty eight through forty one of the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume One, translated by John Addington Simons. Chapters thirty eight through forty one. Thirty eight. I shall skip over some intervening circumstances, and tell how Pope Clement, wishing to save the tiaras and the whole collection of the great jewels of the apostolic camera, had me called, and the cavalierino in a room alone. This cavalierino had been a groom in the stable of Filippo Strozzi. He was French, and a person of the lowest birth, but being a most faithful servant, the Pope had made him very rich, and confided in him like himself. So the Pope, the cavalier, and I, being shut up together, they laid before me the tiaras and jewels of the regalia, and His Holiness ordered me to take all the gems out of their gold settings. This I accordingly did. Afterwards I wrapped them separately up in bits of paper, and we sewed them into the linings of the Pope's and the Cavalier's clothes. Then they gave me all the gold, which weighed about two hundred pounds, and bade me melt it down as secretly as I was able. I went up to the angel, where I had my lodging, and could lock the door so as to be free from interruption. There I built a little draught furnace of bricks, with a largish pot, shaped like an open dish, at the bottom of it, and throwing the gold upon the coals, it gradually sank through and dropped into the pan. While the furnace was working, I never left off watching how to annoy our enemies, and as their trenches were less than a stone's throw right below us, I was able to inflict considerable damage on them with some useless missiles, of which there were several piles, forming the old munition of the castle. I chose a swivel and a falconet, which were both a little damaged in the muzzle, and filled them with the projectiles I have mentioned. When I fired my guns, they hurtled down like mad, occasioning all sorts of unexpected mischief in the trenches. Accordingly I kept those pieces always going at the same time that the gold was being melted down, and a little before vespers I noticed someone coming along the margin of the trench on muleback. The mule was trotting very quickly, and the man was talking to the soldiers in the trenches. I took the precaution of discharging my artillery just before he came to the immediate opposite, and so, making a good calculation, I hit my mark. One of the fragments struck him in the face. The rest were scattered on the mule, which fell dead. A tremendous uproar rose from the trench. I opened fire with my other piece, doing them a great hurt. The man turned out to be the Prince of Orange, who was carried through the trenches to a certain tavern in the neighborhood, whither in a short while all the chief folk of the army came together. When Pope Clement heard what I had done, he sent at once to call for me, and inquired into the circumstances. I related the whole, and added that the man must have been of the greatest consequence, because the inn to which they carried him had been immediately filled by all the chiefs of the army, so far at least as I could judge. The Pope, with a shrewd instinct, sent for Messer Antonio Santa Croce, the nobleman who, as I have said, was chief and commander of the gunners. He bade him order all us bombardiers to point our pieces, which were very numerous, in one mass upon the house, and to discharge them all together upon the signal of an arquebus being fired. He judged that if we killed the generals, the army, which was already almost on the point of breaking up, would take flight. God perhaps had heard the prayers they kept continually making, and meant to rid them in this manner of these impious scoundrels. We put our cannon in order at the command of Santa Croce, and waited for the signal. 
but when Cardinal Orsini became aware of what was going forward, he began to expostulate with the Pope, protesting that the thing by no means ought to happen, seeing they were on the point of concluding an accommodation, and that if the generals were killed, the rabble of the troops without a leader would storm the castle and complete their utter ruin. Consequently, they could by no means allow the Pope's plan to be carried out. The poor Pope, in despair, seeing himself assassinated both inside the castle and without, said that he left them to arrange it. On this our orders were countermanded, but I, who chafed against the leash, when I knew that they were coming round to bid me stop from firing, let blaze one of my demi-cannons, and struck a pillar in the courtyard of the house, around which I saw a crowd of people clustering. This shot did such damage to the enemy that it was like to have made them evacuate the house. Cardinal Orsini was absolutely for having me hanged or put to death, but the Pope took up my cause with spirit. The high words that passed between them, though I well know what they are, I will not here relate, because I make no profession of writing history. It is enough for me to occupy myself with my own affairs. 39. After I had melted down the gold, I took it to the Pope, who thanked me cordially for what I had done, and ordered the Cavalierino to give me twenty-five crowns, apologizing to me for his inability to give me more. A few days afterwards the articles of peace were signed. I went with three hundred comrades in the train of Signor Orazio Baglioni toward Perugia, and there he wished to make me captain of the company, but I was unwilling at the moment, saying that I wanted first to go and see my father, and to redeem the ban which was still in force against me at Florence. Signor Orazio told me that he had been appointed general of the Florentines, and Sir Pier Mario de Lotto, the envoy from Florence, was with him, to whom he specially recommended me as his man. In course of time I came to Florence in the company of several comrades. The plague was raging with indescribable fury. When I reached home I found my good father, who thought either that I must have been killed in the sack of Rome, or else that I should come back to him a beggar. However, I entirely defeated both these expectations, for I was alive, with plenty of money, a fellow to wait on me in a good horse. My joy on greeting the old man was so intense, that while he embraced and kissed me, I thought that I must die upon the spot. After I had narrated all the devilries of that dreadful sack, and had given him a good quantity of crowns which I had gained by my soldiering, and when we had exchanged our tokens of affection, he went off to the eight to redeem my ban. It so happened that one of those magistrates who sentenced me was now again a member of the board. It was the very man who had so inconsiderately told my father he meant to march me out into the country with the lances. My father took this opportunity of addressing him with some meaning words, in order to mark his revenge, relying on the favor which Orazio Baglioni showed me. Matters standing thus, I told my father how Signor Orazio had appointed me captain, and that I ought to begin to think of enlisting my company. At these words the poor old man was greatly disturbed, and begged me, for God's sake, not to turn my thoughts to such an enterprise, although he knew I should be fit for this or yet a greater business, adding that his other son, my brother, was already a most valiant soldier, and that I ought to pursue the noble art in which I had laboured so many years, and with such diligence of study. Although I promised to obey him, he reflected, like a man of sense, that if Signor Orazio came to Florence I could not withdraw myself from military service, partly because I had passed my word, as well as for other reasons. He therefore thought of a good expedient for sending me away, and spoke to me as follows. "'Oh, my dear son, the plague in this town is raging with immitigable violence, and I am always fancying you will come home infected with it. 
I remember, when I was a young man, that I went to Mantua, where I was very kindly received, and stayed there several years. I pray and command you, for the love of me, to pack off and go thither, and I would have you do this to-day rather than to-morrow. 40. I had always taken pleasure in seeing the world, and having never been to Mantua, I went there very willingly. Of the money I had brought to Florence, I left the greater part with my good father, promising to help him wherever I might be, and confiding him to the care of my elder sister. Her name was Cosa, and since she never cared to marry, she was admitted as a nun in Santa Orsola, but she put off taking the veil, in order to keep house for our old father, and to look after my younger sister, who was married to one Bartolomeo, a surgeon. So then, leaving home with my father's blessing, I mounted my good horse, and rode off on it to Mantua. It would take too long to describe that little journey in detail. The whole world being darkened over with plague and war, I had the greatest difficulty in reaching Mantua. However, in the end I got there, and looked about for work to do, which I obtained from a maestro Niccolo of Milan, goldsmith to the Duke of Mantua. Having thus settled down to work, I went after two days of work to visit Messer Guiello Romano, that most excellent painter, of whom I have already spoken, and my very good friend. He received me with the tenderest caresses, and took it very ill that I had not dismounted at his house. He was living like a lord, and executing a great work for the duke outside the city gates, in a place called Del Te. It was a vast and prodigious undertaking, as may still, I suppose, be seen by those who go there. Mr. Guiello lost no time in speaking of me to the duke in terms of the warmest praise. That prince commissioned me to make a model for a reliquary, to hold the blood of Christ, which they have there, and say was brought to them by Longinus. Then he turned to Guiello, bidding him to supply me with a design for it. To this Guiello replied, My lord, Benvenuto is a man who does not need other people's sketches, as your excellency will be very well able to judge, when you shall see his model. I set hand to the work, and made a drawing for the reliquary, well adapted to contain the sacred file. Then I made a little waxen model of the cover. This was a seated Christ, supporting his great cross aloft with the left hand, while he seemed to lean against it, and with the fingers of his right hand he appeared to be opening the wound in his side. When it was finished, it pleased the duke so much that he heaped favours on me, and gave me to understand he would keep me in his service with such appointments as should enable me to live in affluence. Meanwhile I had paid my duty to the cardinal, his brother, who begged the duke to allow me to make the pontifical seat of his most reverend lordship. This I began, but while I was working at it I caught a quartan fever. During each access of this fever I was thrown into delirium, when I cursed Mantua and its master and whoever stayed there at his own liking. These words were reported to the duke by the Milanese goldsmith, who had not omitted to notice that the duke wanted to employ me. When the prince heard the ravings of my sickness, he flew into a passion against me, and I, being out of temper with Mantua, our bad feeling was reciprocal. The seal was finished after four months, together with several other little pieces I made for the duke under the name of the cardinal. His reverence paid me well, and bade me return to Rome, to that marvellous city where we had made acquaintance. I quitted Mantua with a good sum of crowns, and reached Scoverno, where the most valiant general Giovanni had been killed. Here I had a slight relapse of fever, which did not interrupt my journey, and coming now to an end it never returned on me again. When I arrived at Florence I hoped to find my dear father, and knocking at the door, a hump-backed woman in a fury showed her face at the window, 
she drove me off with a torrent of abuse, screaming that the sight of me was a consumption to her. To this misshapen hag I shouted, Ho! Tell me, cross-grained hunchback, is there no other face to see here but your ugly visage? No, and bad luck to you. Whereupon I answered in a loud voice, In less than two hours it may never vex us more. Attracted by this dispute, a neighbor put her head out, from whom I learned that my father and all the people in the house had died of the plague. As I had partly guessed it might be so, my grief was not so great as it would otherwise have been. The woman afterwards told me that only my sister Liparata had escaped, and that she had taken refuge with a pious lady named Mona Andrea de Bellacci. I took my way from thence to the inn, and met by accident a very dear friend of mine, Giovanni Rigogli. Dismounting at his house, we proceeded to the piazza, where I received intelligence that my brother was alive, and went to find him at the house of a friend of his called Bertino Aldobrandini. On meeting, we made demonstrations of the most passionate affection, for he had heard that I was dead, and I had heard that he was dead, and so our joy at embracing one another was extravagant. Then he broke out into a loud fit of laughter, and said, "'Come, brother, I will take you where I'm sure you'd never guess.' You must know that I have given our sister Liparata away again in marriage, and she holds it for absolute certain that you are dead. On our way we told each other all the wonderful adventures we had met with, and when we reached the house where our sister dwelt, the surprise of seeing me alive threw her into a fainting fit, and she fell senseless in my arms. Had not my brother been present, her speechlessness and sudden seizure must have made her husband imagine I was some one different from a brother, as indeed at first it did. Cecchino, however, explained matters, and busied himself in helping the swooning woman, who soon came to. Then, after shedding some tears for father, sister, husband, and a little son whom she had lost, she began to get the supper ready, and during our merry meeting, all that evening, we talked no more about dead folk, but rather discoursed gaily about weddings. Then, with gladness and great enjoyment, we brought our supper-party to an end. 41. On the entreaty of my brother and sister, I remained at Florence, though my own inclination led me to return to Rome. The dear friend also, who had helped me in some of my earlier troubles, as I have narrated, I mean Piero, son of Giovanni Landi, he too advised me to make some stay in Florence, for the Medici were in exile, that is to say, Signor Ippolito and Signor Alessandro, who were afterwards respectively Cardinal and Duke of Florence, and he judged it would be well for me to wait and see what happened. At that time there arrived in Florence a Sienese, called Girolamo Meretti, who had lived long in Turkey and was a man of lively intellect. He came to my shop, and commissioned me to make a golden medal to be worn in the hat. The subject was to be Hercules wrenching the lion's mouth. While I was working at this piece, Michael Angelo Bunerati came oftentimes to see it. I had spent infinite pains upon the design, so that the attitude of the figure and the fierce passion of the beast were executed in quite a different style from that of any craftsman who had hitherto attempted such groups. This, together with the fact that, that the special branch of art was totally unknown to Michelangelo, made the divine master give such praises to my work that I felt incredibly inspired for further effort. However, I found little else to do but jewel-setting, and though I gained more thus than in any other way, yet I was dissatisfied, for I would fain have been employed upon some higher task than that of setting precious stones. Just then I met with Federigo Ginori, a young man of a very lofty spirit. He had lived some years in Naples, and being endowed with great charms of person and presence, had been the lover of a Neapolitan princess. 
he wanted to have a medal made, with Atlas bearing the world upon his shoulders, and applied to Michelangelo for a design. Michelangelo made this answer, Go and find out a young goldsmith named Benvenuto. He will serve you admirably, and certainly he does not stand in need of sketches by me. However, to prevent your thinking that I want to save myself the trouble of so slight a matter, I will gladly sketch you something, but meanwhile speak to Benvenuto, and let him also make a model. He can then execute the better of the two designs. Federigo Ginori came to me, and told me what he wanted, adding thereto how Michelangelo had praised me, and how he had suggested I should make a wax and model, while he undertook to supply a sketch. The words of that great man so heartened me, that I set myself to work at once with eagerness upon the model, and when I had finished it, a painter who was intimate with Michelangelo, called Giuliano Bugiardini, brought me the drawing of Atlas. On the same occasion I showed Giuliano my little model in wax, which was very different from Michelangelo's drawing, and Federigo, in concert with Bugiardini, agreed that I should work upon my model. So I took it in hand, and when Michelangelo saw it, he praised me through the skies. This was a figure, as I have said, chiseled on a plate of gold. Atlas had the heaven upon his back, made out of a crystal ball, engraved with the zodiac upon a field of lapis lazuli. The whole composition produced an indescribably fine effect, and under it ran the legend Summa Tulis Juvat. Federigo was so thoroughly well pleased that he paid me very liberally. Aluigi Almani was at that time in Florence. Federigo Ginori, who enjoyed his friendship, brought him often to my workshop, and through this introduction we became very intimate together. End of chapter 38-41